Welcome to the Health Woman Podcast. Today's Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. We've been working on this podcast since the beginning of the year, and our plan was to launch it in May. But due to the coronavirus outbreak, we decided to speed up production. First, because corona's on everyone's mind, and there are so many topics people want to hear about. Also, because nobody's able to go out anymore, and we're all looking for some good content to listen to. So we hope this will be good for you. Our first podcast is Pregnancy in the Land of Corona with Dr. Emily Oster. Emily is someone I'd hope you'll all come to know well, as she's a fantastic author and blogger. She has a PhD in economics and has used her expertise in data collection and analysis to study pregnancy and parenting. I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with her on pregnancy during the coronavirus outbreak. This week, we will also be releasing two other corona-related podcasts, one on labor and delivery in the land of corona with Dr. Angela Bianco, the medical director of labor and delivery at Mount Sinai Hospital, where we do our deliveries. Also, please look forward to podcasts about lockdown with our kids at home and advice for parents during corona. For this podcast, I'll be speaking with Dr. Michal Igas fox a school psychologist, an expert on children and parenting, and my wife. In addition, starting next week, expect a new podcast every Monday and Thursday. Next week, you'll get to meet one of my partners, Dr. Stephanie Lamb, and also hear her speak about Don't Fear the Pap Smear. Thanks a lot for listening. Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Welcome to the first ever Healthful Woman podcast. I'm Dr. Nathan Fox, and I'm super excited for our first guest, Dr. Emily Oster, who's joining us uh, via phone line because we are in lockdown, in quarantine, in the land of corona. We were actually planning on starting this podcast in May, and we've been planning for it since January. And uh, Emily and I were supposed to record last week in person but now that you know the world has gone crazy, we can't be near each other. And so I'm in my office alone talking to a microphone. And I assume, Emily, you're the same somewhere. Yes, I am actually also in my office alone talking through my phone. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm at least wearing my Cubs jersey because the day we're recording, which is Thursday, March 26th, was supposed to be opening day. So in honor of that, or I guess in memory of that, I'm wearing my Cubs jersey. But otherwise, it's, it's pretty lonely. How you doing over there? Uh, we're pretty good. I've had a lot of time with my kids, which, you know, is mostly good, I would say. Mostly good. <laughs> I'm still at work every day. When I come home, all my kids are home. I've got my two college kids are at home and my high schooler, my eighth grader, my wife, my dogs. It's actually kind of lovely. It's nice seeing them every night and hanging out with them and spending time with them. But definitely it's a challenge for all of us. Yes. And my kids are, are little, so we're trying to sort of simultaneously run a kind of homeschool and also have some jobs. So been logistically challenging, but we're getting we're getting through it. And I feel pretty lucky in some ways to get to spend time with them. These are interesting times. Yeah. When we decided to uh, do this podcast earlier than expected because of what's going on Corona, the first person who I wanted to talk to to give everyone an opportunity to hear was Emily. So Emily Oster, you're an economist, you're a PhD, but you're also now an expert in pregnancy and prenatal care and also parenting a young children. Can you just explain to everybody like who you are? How do you, how do you get to this position in life? So yeah, I'm an economist. I have a PhD in, in economics and almost 10 years ago now, 
actually, I think about 10 years ago now, I was, you know, an assistant professor in Chicago and I got pregnant with my daughter, who is now almost nine. And I kind of really got into using the tools that I have in my job. So thinking about data and causality and evidence in the service of my pregnancy. So, you know, thinking about a lot of the questions that your patients probably ask you, you know, can I have some sushi? Can I have a glass of wine? What kind of prenatal testing do I need? And I didn't feel like I was getting the answers. Not that I wasn't getting the content of the answers that I wanted, but I wasn't getting the details about the data. And so I spent a lot of time in that first pregnancy, really digging in, into the data and evidence around those decisions. And in the end, I wrote a book about it called Expecting Better, which came out in 2013. And you know, at, at that point, I became a person who writes books about pregnancy. And so I eventually wrote another book in 2019 about babies and using the same kind of tools, data, evidence to try to think about, you know, how important is breastfeeding and what does the evidence tell us about potty training and questions like that. In the interim, I had a second kid who's now four and I moved to Rhode Island where I teach now at Brown. You know, I think one's career path is always a little bit fluid and mine certainly has been, but I'm still, you know, I'm still an economics professor. I still do a lot of stuff with economics, but I've gotten much more into trying to translate evidence for, for people, particularly around issues in pregnancy and parenting. So in the context of this particular viral moment that we are in, I've been doing a lot of writing in a sort of more informal blog newsletter type way on sort of data around the the coronavirus sort of where i who i am and where i how i got here right and the reason i thought that you'd be fantastic for this other than obviously you're like super duper smart to know about this is you both have expertise in analyzing data and projections and which is such a you know part of the complexity of what's going on now but also in terms of you know this podcast and our listeners focusing specifically on women's health and pregnancy you have such a keen insight into that as well many of our listeners may not have you know heard of you but probably so many have read your book expecting better or crib sheets uh, and they may even actually get your newsletter but not never put you know two and two together so i think it's great and by the way just as a plug it's a great newsletter i highly recommend signing up for it you can sign up at your website www.emilyoster.net that's e m i l y o s t e r Net. I signed up for it. I read it. I love it. And I'm really excited to talk to you. Let's dig in. So, you know, projections for this coronavirus are all over the place. You know, it's going to end in a week. It's going to end in a month. It's going to last for three years. It's going to decimate the population. We're all going to be fine. How do you interpret the data to date and, and make predictions or projections yourself? I'm really curious how you look at all this. So I've actually been working a lot on this because I've been trying to help the state of Rhode Island kind of do some of this modeling. I mean, I think the, the basic problem is that there is a huge amount of uncertainty around epidemic modeling. So I think sort of stepping back in order to understand the path of something like the coronavirus, you need to know a lot of things about the data, the most important of which is some notion of how many people every infected person will infect. If every infected person infects 10 more people, the disease will, will spread really fast. And if every infected person infects, you know, half an additional person, the disease will will die out. The projections are really dependent on that. But because it's sort of like multiplying, so one person goes to 10 people, they each go to 10 people, because it's it works like that, there's a big difference in the projection between assuming, say, everyone will infect two people and everyone will infect 1.6 people. That actually makes like an enormous difference to the speed of, of growth. Right, because it's exponential. 
Exactly, because it's exponential. That makes a huge difference to the speed of growth. But it's really hard to know whether the right number for that is, say, 2.5 or 1.7 or, you know, 1.9. But since those numbers would all produce like wildly different projections, you can see things that are sort of all over the map. And so I think that's part of what is really hard about this. And it also provides an opportunity for people to bring in whatever biases they have. And you might think, okay, well, why can't we just, you know, try a number and see how it matches the data? But since our data isn't that good, and it takes some time between, say, social distancing and seeing the benefits in terms of hospitalizations, we can't just say, let me try this today and see what happens tomorrow. We got to say, let's try this today and see what happens in two weeks. But, you know, two weeks before now, the world was a really different place. And maybe by the time this podcast comes out in a week, things will look different also. So I think those kind of pieces of uncertainty are the reason why the numbers that you see are just like all over the map. So what do you look at when you're looking at the number? What's sort of the best case scenario, worst case scenario? There must be you know brackets around these numbers to some degree. Yeah, but I, the brackets are so large that they they sort of admit numbers that are kind of all over. There are projections that would admit numbers like 15,000 deaths or in the range of kind of what we see from a bad seasonal flu, for sure. And then there are numbers that are 2 million, which of course is way outside the range of of really big. It's a big number. You know, I think the other thing that's hard here is with this particular virus, there is a big difference in what we're going to see in mortality if we can keep up with people in terms of hospitalizations, right? So if you sort of think about there being kind of like one scenario in which some people die, but they are people who will die of this, even with the best medical care that we can provide. And then there's a scenario in which a lot of people die who wouldn't have had to die, but they, they die because the medical care that they have accessible is not that good because hospitals are overrun. Those two scenarios, I think, feel very different, but they also rely on a lot of assumptions that we're also really uncertain about, like what share of people will be hospitalized, what share will need the ICU, and you know how much can we ramp up uh, other hospitalization resources. So there's just like so many things moving around at the same time. I think it's making it really, really, really challenging to to do these kind of projections. It's different in every state and every part of the state. I mean, if you look at New York City, you know, we were just talking as of today, there's 21,000 cases. So that's a huge number compared to everyone else. And other people may have lower numbers, but also, you know, it's it's based on your population density and how close people are to each other, how good you are at collecting and reporting data and how many people you test. If you test everybody, you'll have more cases. And if you don't test anybody, you'll have fewer cases. Yeah, I think that's that's like a super important distinction, which I think people have missed, at least, you know, at, the, at this point, which is this idea that like counts of cases in a world with uncertain testing is not that that meaningful. I mean, in some sense, it's a it's a lower bound, but you don't know if you have, you know, 25,000 people who have tested positive, is that reflecting the fact that, you know, a million people have it or the fact that 27,000 people have it? And that means that how many cases you're detecting is really sensitive to your testing rate. And it provides people kind of an incentive, you know, policymakers an incentive not to test because, of course, like then you have to report that a lot of people have the virus. When I've been doing this modeling and thinking about it in this case, I've been thinking focus much more on hospitalizations, on deaths, on ICU usage, on the things which are 
sort of more verifiable and are reflecting more serious cases, things that are stressing the medical system, stressing the hospital. Right. And percentages are also not that helpful because the percentage obviously depends on the numerator and the denominator. And so since you don't really know what the denominator is for number of total cases, when someone says the death rate is X percent, well, that's really hard to know because you don't actually know over how many. Whereas if you look at total number of deaths or total number of hospitalizations, that's valuable because like you said, you can look at the total number of hospitalizations and say, well, how many hospital beds do we have? And that's just a you know simple arithmetic. You know, Did you have more beds than sick people? And you'll probably be do a lot better than if it's the opposite. Yeah, exactly. You were saying in, in Rhode Island, there's so few cases. Do you think it's because it just hasn't spread there yet or because somehow people are distanced better? or because it's just not being reported? No, I mean, I think it's not the third thing. So I think, you know, at the at the moment, so again, we're talking in like March 26th, at the moment, Rhode Island has, you know, like a close to a couple hundred detected cases, maybe a bit fewer than that, and about 25 people who have been hospitalized cumulatively. Those numbers are not very big. It's certainly true we could be doing more testing, but I think if you look at the hospitalization numbers, those are also pretty low. I think it's unclear whether that's because it's earlier in the epidemic, because we started distancing earlier, or because, you know, New York is a kind of different place. My instinct, looking at, say, New York versus California, is that there is something unusual about the the role of density in, in New York. That may mean that the, the epidemic is worse there just in general. But I don't think we have a great understanding of this. I mean, you could ask the same question about Italy. You know, why is it so much worse in Italy than, than in some other places in Europe? Like, why was that place so heavily affected? I think we don't we don't really know. It's tough stuff. Now, and you're also, your followers, so to speak, I assume are mostly, you know, parents and pregnant women. I, I don't know how many, do you get a lot of, Economists who follow you and you know social media and whatnot. pregnant pregnant yeah. economists. I got a lot of <laughs> pregnant economists. I'm really my my like sales to people who are pregnant economists, pregnant female economists. They lo- they like to read my books. That's, that's <laughs> good a big, population. That's a me. big voting block. The pregnant big female economists. Block. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And and so what what are what are you hearing from you know your listeners, your readers, your followers? What are they what are they worried about? You know, what are they emailing you about? And how do you advise them? There's like a few categories. So I think there are a lot of pregnant women who are worried about the impacts of coronavirus in pregnancy. And I think the the good piece of that, I mean, you and I talked a little bit about this. I think the good piece of that is actually like outcomes for pregnant women have tended to be pretty good. There doesn't seem to be transfer to the fetus in utero. And so I think that that's very encouraging. So usually I'm able to make people feel a bit better there. I think a lot of people are worried about the kinds of restrictions that hospitals, particularly in New York, have put uh, on delivery. And so I actually have a lot of people written to me about, you know, delivering alone and and without a partner, which of course they're very upset about. So that's kind of another big piece. And then I've been hearing a lot, you know, partly because I speak also to parents about just the question of like, what am I supposed to do with my kid now that they're home all the time? In some ways, people I think are very worried about socialization. Somebody wrote to me the other day and was like, you know, I have a 10 day old baby and we're isolating. Like I'm worried he's not going to be sufficiently socialized. And I, so there I was able to be like, don't worry about it. Your 10 day old baby does not need any socialization at all and should actually not have any. But, you know, for people with older kids, you have a two or three-year-old to say somehow, you know, that kid's going to be alone. People worry about the kind of, you know, socio-emotional development piece of of childhood a little bit. So those are kind of some categories. Wow. And so, you know, with the risks, and we talk about this, I've been talking about this all day, every day, you know, since it started with (laughs) with our patients. And it is encouraging, actually, because, you know, when we look at the seasonal flu, pregnant women 
do much worse than non-pregnant women of the same age and same health and whatnot. Pregnancy definitely, we believe because they're somewhat immunosuppressed, their immune system is somewhat lower, that they don't have a, an easy time fighting off the flu and they tend to do much worse. So flu seems to be more dangerous for pregnant women. But the coronavirus has not, at least in limited data, appeared to be that way. Just what people are reporting in our own pa patient population, we probably have by today, I don't know, about 30 pregnant women with you know positive tests. And they're all home and they're with, you know, maybe a bad cold or a mild flu. And presumably there's others who have it and didn't even get tested. And that's what others are reporting as well. And it, it does appear to be that the more important variable is whether you're young and healthy, uh, more so than whether you're pregnant or not, which is quite reassuring, at least as of now for pregnant women, because uh, we thought it would, you know, we sort of assumed it would be much worse for them. And we've been pleasantly surprised. Uh, obviously, it's not great to get it, and you'd prefer not to get it when you're pregnant, and it could be dangerous, but it hasn't really turned out that way. The New York City data, the, the hospitalization rate for people under 45 who are healthy and the death rate for people under 45 or healthy is so low, that's actually been reassuring because most of our patients are you know, in that age group and tend to be healthy, and those with medical problems tend not to be so severe if they're pregnant or they have them, but they're young. The other thing I've been hearing a lot from people is, you know, concerns about their their parents, right? So this is a time when, like, we're all kind of simultaneously, in some ways, there's a sort of relief associated with, okay, like, I, you know, I'm 40 and I'm, I'm healthy, and so if I get this, it's going to very likely be kind of a bad experience of being sick, but it will be okay. And for my kids, sort of the data, I think, suggests it's even milder, sort of like their fault that you get it. But we worry about our parents, you know, my in-laws are in Brooklyn and we definitely are trying to make them not go outside very much. Yeah. It's, I mean, they don't, my, yeah, they don't my, like to know. be nagged. <laughs> it's, it's tough. I mean, listen, my parents, uh, they're, they're in Chicago, they're in good health, but they're in their late seventies. And yeah, it's, uh, it's scary to just to be in that age category because for whatever reason, the virus seems to be much more virulent people in that age category or with health problems. And so it is it is tough. And I was actually going to ask you about that. And I'm curious, as an economist, what are your thoughts about the relative value of quarantine versus the risk of sort of shutting down the economy? Because, you know, the instinct is, okay, we have this, you know, contagious disease, let's send everyone inside, stop working. And presumably it's going to decrease the number of people who get infected, and it's going to decrease probably the number of people who need to be hospitalized and decrease the number of people who are going to die. And I think that's fantastic. But at a certain point, there's also a problem with shutting down the economy. I mean, people make the argument, well, you could, you know, change the, you know, the speed limit on the highway to 30 miles an hour, and you'll probably prevent some traffic accident related deaths. But we're not willing to do that. And so how do you look at that as an economist about the value of each things? And you know, when is too much quarantine a bad thing and when is it a good thing? So obviously, like all of us have been thinking a lot about this, you know, in terms of some of that is like a question about the macro economy. But, you know, I think there is a behavioral question I've been thinking a lot about, which is the question of kind of how do people adhere to these kind of restrictions and how and I think that's actually pretty important. I think partly when you make the restrictions so extreme, I think you run the risk of people saying like, I can't do that. And so I'm just going to kind of like ignore this. It's interesting because this comes up sometimes when people think about pregnancy restrictions, they kind of like telling everybody, you know, absolutely never eat any deli meats. And then you're like, well, you know, I, I don't really, I can't really follow all these restrictions. So I might as well just 
kind of not do any of them, as opposed to saying, you know, here are the things that are really important and here are the things that are that are less important. And so I worry a little bit here that with some of the very extreme, like don't leave your house restrictions, people are just not going to find that to be feasible for, for six months. You know, eventually it's going to be warm. And people are going to go outside. There may be a way to frame the restrictions that would make people more likely to adhere to them for a longer term. I think the other thing that I'm really worried about is schools. And, you know, as an, as an economist who kind of thinks about inequality and education and educational outcomes, the fact that, you know, we closed a bunch of schools and actually from a learning standpoint, that's probably not so bad for kids like my kids. I mean, of course, I would prefer them to be in school. They love school. I love their school. I don't like to be their teacher. But in the end, you know, they're going to learn a bunch of math. And, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time on schooling because, like, I am a person who can organize their life around homeschooling my kids. And my kids have good access to internet and they can do distance learning and this thing and that thing. But there are a lot of kids who aren't going to have access to that. And if we, you know, leave them without school for six months or longer, that's going to promote even more inequality than than we have. And that has long term effects on the economy. So, you know, putting all these things together, I think is not is, is not easy. It's not easy to see what the right choices are. Yeah. And it's also very hard because, again, like you said, I don't think people are so concerned that if all the kids went back to school, something horrible would happen to our children. The no. fear is that they're going to, you know, be these little incubators and the teachers will get sick or the principals will get sick or yeah. people who work in the school and then they'll come home and the crossing guard will get sick and the, you know, whoever, their parents, their grandparents and and whatnot. And, you know, people talk about this sort of partial quarantine where you take people at high risk and tell them to stay inside and tell everyone else to go outside and be around each other. And, you know, how do you do that logistically? It's it's not easy stuff, but yeah, there's a real downside. I mean, my kids are at home and like you said, they're they're doing the the video school and whatever, you know, they learn something, they don't learn something. You know, you miss a few months of school, it's it's fine for pretty much everybody. But at a certain point, it becomes a real issue and families whose the parents have to stay home from work in order to watch these kids or take care of them, and then that can affect them you know, in terms of, you know, just financially, and also then maybe they lose their job and it's something more long-term and then it can have, you know, other effects on their health. And it's very hard to, you know, predict or reliably predict at least all of the ripple effects of these quarantines. On the other hand, you know, you also don't want the hospitals overrun with people and, and you know, people not being able to get admitted to the hospital or get on ventilators. It's just a real, it's a real tough decision. And I don't know how people make these decisions without good data. Yes. I mean, I think the other thing that people are trying to, that I think, you know, we're sort of trying to figure out, and I know that, that people here are trying to figure out is kind of, you know, how can we use better tracking to try to sort of take our foot off the brake a little bit on the social distancing and replace it with better kind of testing and isolation measures. So, you know, my husband and I were talking on the way in, taking a walk today about, you know, well, maybe you could reopen the schools and have, you know, the National Guard standing outside with the temperature gun. And just like every kid gets temperature measured on the way in. And then if you have a temperature, that's it, you don't come to, you don't come to school. Now that's not going to totally prevent things, but that kind of approach would have some impacts because of course it would mean that, you know, symptomatic people are not in school. On the other hand, you know, it's not like very America. America's not really into, you know, people with soldiers with temperature measures outside your kid's school. And so I think we're, we're sort of up against some constraints like that, on top of which nobody is organized enough to do those to do those kind of things. So yeah, and I think that gets back to what you were saying before about one of the things that your readers seem to be concerned about is all these restrictions that some of the hospitals have placed on them in regards to childbirth. And it's the same situation. It's how do we figure out a way 
to let people in for, you know, their childbirth and with their partner or whoever, you know, their doula, whoever's going to be with them, but not, you know, infect the whole labor floor and get all the staff sick and all the babies in the NICU sick. And, you know, right now, as of today, there isn't really a good rapid test that's A, readily available, B, reliable, and C, have enough of them to use them, you know, in that capacity. They're using them on people who are actually sick. And I think that that's part of the argument in terms of like population screening. I'm not a huge fan of just going around and swabbing everybody for corona. I don't know what the value is in general, but that would be a particular situation where it would be valuable. If you had a test where you can get a result in under an hour, just say, okay, show up in labor. And if your partner tests negative in the lobby, we'll let him or her up and that's it. Right. And if they test positive, go home. But we're just not at that place yet. And so the hospitals are in the same situation as the schools. We either let yeah. people in and we know that more people are going to get infected or we don't let them in and we know that it's going to be a very stressful and anxiety provoking situation for women who are coming in labor. The one thing you said I don't agree with is the is the idea that we shouldn't just be going and swabbing people around because I think the main piece of data that we are missing in a lot of these epidemiological projections, sort of getting back to that discussion, and the main piece of information we are missing is just what share of people in the overall population have this virus now, like have had it, right? And so I think, you know, if you, there are a lot of people that I know who have had the coronavirus for sure, who have not been tested. Pretty clear they had it. Their doctor was like, look, you know, don't come in. You probably have it. But like, you know, it seems like you're fine. And so I think if we went around and we tested, you know, a few thousand people in any given locality, we'd actually learn a lot about that. And that's a pretty important input to these to these models. So I would like to do that, although not in the service of pregnant women, just in the service of, of modeling. Right. To get better data collection. I was actually going to ask you specifically that if you could get design the data collection process, you know, what would you want to know? And I guess that does make sense to know what is, you know, just the incidence in any population. But yeah. it'd be more helpful for modeling than it would clinically, again, because currently the tests don't come back rapidly. So you can get them right. sometimes eight hours later, sometimes two days later. But the problem is someone has symptoms and you test them and they're negative, it's possible they would test positive the next day. Or, you know, vice versa. It's not always that clear because you have to figure out the timing and the illness lasts longer and you're only testing them at one point in time. You'll have better data than not testing them, but it's still it's still complicated. What do you, I mean, obviously, I'm sure people are asking you, what should they do now that their hospitals is not allowing their partner to come? Are you advising them to hope for the best or, you know, get out of town or deliver at home or what do you, what do you, what are you recommending they do? You know, there's sort of two things that pe specific interventions that people have asked about is, you know, should I leave New York and, you know, should I have a home birth? And so I think what, you know, what I've been telling people who are close to delivery is neither of those things is really a very, very feasible, you know, it's, it's, it's not obviously socially responsible to, to leave New York. And at any rate, finding a provider in another state at this stage is going to be pretty challenging. I just don't think that that's very, very realistic. I do know some women who have left, but they tend to be sort of more like 34 weeks pregnant rather than like 39 weeks pregnant. And, you know, and then the other question people have is, you know, should I have, should I have a home birth? I have been telling people, I don't think that's a good idea. I actually gotten a fair amount of pushback about that. I talk in, in my books about the general idea of home birth. And I sort of say, you know, I think I can see why some people would want to do this. You know, I think if you if you've thought about it far in advance, 
and you know you have a a reliable provider somebody that you you know somebody who's a certified nurse midwife who has a lot of a lot of experience you know i can see why for some people that could be the good choice although i think there are some you know small risks associated with it that feels to me very different than kind of at the last minute scrambling in the middle of a global viral pandemic to find a midwife who will deliver you at home in the middle of the most heavily affected area of, of the country. Costs of giving birth in a hospital have gone up, but it seems to me like the costs of the home birth have also gone up quite a lot. And so I've been I've been telling people that's not a good idea. I mean, home birth in general is a complicated topic because it's yes. not just the home birth, it's the system, right? So if you look at data in systems that are really well organized, like, you know, in Europe, like in, you know, England, for example, it, their data is great and the, the risks are very low, but they also have a very organized structure for what to do and what happens if there's an emergency or a concern and how it goes. Whereas here, at least in the Northeast, it's a little bit more haphazard. And so each individual home birth midwife has potentially a relationship with one doctor, one hospital. There isn't like a system that's in place that is accepting or welcoming of this so much. And so it, it tends to be uh, more you know haphazard, which makes it difficult to get good good outcomes in the same ways if you had a better system set up. But yeah, in this situation, I mean, it's also very difficult because you know now you're bringing someone else into your home and you're not sure is she going to get exposed? Or are you going to expose her? Do you have other people? And what if there's a problem? Where are you going to go? Is the hospital going to think differently about accepting you if you were laboring at home and they don't know your exposures and now it's an emergent situation? It is complicated. You know, in New York, one of the interesting things is as of today, some hospitals have this restriction and some hospitals don't. And one of the fears is that everyone is just going to show up in the hospitals that don't have the restriction and just, mm -hmm. you know, either with a doctor who's agreed to deliver them or just say, hey, I'm going to show up because, you know, hospital can't turn you away. If I come in and labor, someone there is going to deliver me. But then you have all the same, you know, in general, that's not a great way to have your baby born. And those hospitals may be overrun with patients and not have room. And it it is very difficult. And I don't know if this is something that like the governor is going to step in and say, you know, these have to be uniform or not. I don't even know how it's going to end up because, you know, in Englewood Hospital, for example, they had a policy not allowing and now they do. And I imagine there's going to be movement on this even in the week between, you know, when we're talking now and when this airs. The thing that I am like genuinely very, very worried about is that you know, some people are going to react to this by making some choices which are dangerous. And that as a result, some people are going to die. You know, that that's the thing that like, I, I just keeps me up. It's it's scary. And we have the same issue with our patients. I mean, you know, so many businesses are ramping down or are closing. And for doctors, it's complicated because they're saying that, you know, we should stop or delay, you know, elective procedures like well okay if you're gonna you know come in and maybe have a cosmetic procedure or something okay it's right. pretty easy to say all right that's elective i'll push it off although truthfully the risk isn't that high because there's very little exposure and there's very low risk of complications but it makes a lot of sense but what about someone who needs i don't know an echocardiogram a colonoscopy their mammogram you know something like that which isn't emergent they're not you know dying but if everyone delays it two to three months number one there are people who are getting screened who do have early cancer, and now we're going to be delayed. And number two, in whatever amount of time they sort of open the floodgates in two to three months, it'll be impossible to get appointments to do these things. And number three, all of the doctor's offices that are on hold, they may have to lay off employees, and then they won't be open when it comes back. And it's it's a very difficult thing sort of on a macro level 
in our own practice, we're trying to figure out, you know, what to do because obviously pregnant women, you can't pause pregnancy. They have to come. And on the one hand, you don't want to bring people in if they don't need to come in because you don't want them to be exposed to others or maybe expose others to them. But on the other hand, I always, I have the same thing. I'm worried that someone's not going to come in because they don't want to and they normally would and something's going to get missed and they're going to have a problem. And I'm very hesitant to sort of slow down the type of care we would do for these women because there's active stuff that goes on and I don't want to, you know, miss anything for fear that one of them might get a virus that probably won't do anything horrible to them. Yeah. I mean, it'd be the same thing as coming up in the context of pediatrics, right? People are like, well, I'm going to wait on these vaccines. It's like, well, no, don't, don't wait on the vaccines, please. Um, you know, that's like the, no, like you're, your kid like needs the measles vaccine. Um, you know, they need the they need the pertussis vaccine. You know, they're not gonna get they're very unlikely to get the coronavirus from a you know, well child visit in a well run doctor's office where you're giving them the vaccine. And honestly, even if they did, they're probably gonna be fine. So I think that's that seems like a very tricky, tricky situation. Yeah, that is that is definitely it's tough. And I mean, advice I give people is both when, you know, I'm speaking to, you know, my colleagues, to doctors who are considering whether to see patients or not, and also to, you know, friends of mine or patients of mine, like you should still get the medical care you need during this time, unless it's really elective or truly does not make a difference if you have the, you know, appointment or procedure this week or a month from now. Like if it really doesn't make a difference, fine, it doesn't make a difference. But that's an important distinction to make. I wouldn't push off anything that's important, you know, unless there's real tremendous risk to going into the office. I've struggled with that. You know, it's one of the things that keeps me up at night about, you know, the risk and and pregnant women and my friends is, I mean, there is the virus obviously, but also the consequences of the fear of the virus and everyone staying home. Like with many of these things, it sort of seems like we're, we're trade, particularly given the kind of incidence of the virus, we're, we're really trading across age groups and, and health groups in a way that you know, I think it is complicated to evaluate. It is complicated. And then how are, how are you doing with your kids at home? How are they, how are they handling all this? They seem, they seem okay. I think they're having a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they, you know, they seem good. My kids really like structure. So we've sort of instituted a pretty structured homeschool, like home environment. And I think we're trying to keep it like a little fun. I think my husband and I are very anxious and, you know, worried about getting our jobs done and worried about the, the sort of global meltdown and this thing and that thing and and disappointed about various things that we're not going to get to do. But I think we're trying pretty hard to have it be the case that when they look back on this, they're like, oh, remember that time we spent like, you know, four months at home? Like, that was awesome. We got so much great time together. And so I think we're, we're trying to like make it like that for them. And I think fortunately, one thing that's good is neither of them seem especially anxious about the the health stuff you know my five-year-old couldn't i mean couldn't care less i mean he just doesn't get it but even my my nine-year-old is not is not so so scared so that's that's been good yeah and i think that's really important i mean my my wife's a psychologist and you know we we talk to our kids about this and we're trying you know the same thing to be pretty level-headed with them they're older my kids are you know between 13 and 20 and so they you know they know everything because they're online i think continuously you know we're just trying to explain the same thing that you know if you get it you should be fine if we get it we should be fine we're doing all these things you know to protect your grandmother and you know to try to keep the hospitals in the same place and i do tell them what's going on you know at work and what it's like at the hospital just so they do understand sort of in a population level, the severity of this, but try to keep it, you know, sane. And when our kids look back on this, it really doesn't matter to me if they look back on, oh, I didn't, you know, really 
understand that book so well that I would have gotten better in school, but it's much more so what was the general attitude, you know, in the country and this idea, you know, of people, you know, rising up to help each other and volunteerism and just this idea of concern for one another and fellow citizens. And, you know, times like this, you know, can bring out badness in people, but they usually bring out the best in people that I found. And a lot of, you know, that type of feeling that they could, you know, take with them and remember and also, you know, the things that are important in life and, you know, why staying home all day isn't such a great thing and how we're meant to be social and to have human interaction and to be with other right. people. And I think that that's really, for at least our kids, what I want them to get from this. And so I don't really, you know, for their homeschooling part, it doesn't matter to me so much what they do and don't learn because these are much bigger life lessons than they're going to get from a classroom. Totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think, you know, in some sense, we have been trying to have a school only because, you know, my five-year-old cannot be on his on his own, but definitely a lot of homeschool seems to involve recess. There's yeah. a large <laughs> amount of re a large amount of structured recess and and an activity which in the middle of the morning where we run around the couch three times, do ten push-ups, run around the couch three times, do some jumping jacks, and then check on the plants that were germinating in the basement. Yeah, it's it's, it's a balance. You definitely need structure. I mean, for because for kids they they need some sort of structure, but I think it's and each school is trying to figure this out because they're not yeah. all doing the same. How do you balance you know structure and giving you know, the kids something to do all day or part of the day, but not, you know, stressing them out and not making it something that's too crazy or rigorous. And we're used to doing something a certain way forever. And then suddenly on the turn of a dime, they're doing it a totally different way. Right. That is, that can be pretty freaky for a lot of kids and adults. Yeah. And I think it's also like, you know, the, I mean, I'm experiencing this from the other side because I'm supposed to be teaching my class over Zoom starting on Tuesday. And, you know, it's like one thing, it's one thing to be like, okay, can you teach an online class? Like, sure, I could with, a, you know, a year to prepare, I could probably take my class online in a very nice, you know, structured way, but I had like a week. And so, you know, I think it, I don't have any idea how, how to do that. And I'm sure it will be not really that great. And I'm expecting the same thing. My kids are actually currently on spring break as it happens. And so I'm expecting them to come back next week. It will have a similar level of uh, competency to my own teaching. In our house, we had, you know, four kids on laptops, my wife on a laptop, I'm on a laptop. We're all like doing our, you know, various meetings or this or that you know, on Zoom, and then the Wi-Fi goes down. Literally, someone could have dropped a, you know, a bucket of anthrax in our house, and it would not have had the same type of reaction. <laughs> I'm pretty sure one of my kids, you know, dialed 911 when the Wi-Fi went down, because it was, I mean, and so I, you know, I'd, I'd like stop everything, fix the Wi-Fi, then like three days later, we got the, you know, the cable guy upgrading our Wi-Fi to, you know, like the same, I think the same thing that, you know, a college would have in terms of, you know, right. bandwidth. Right, you got like a T, like a T1 line. Yeah, at the, yeah, they just, yeah, it's, it's yeah. you know, the, the width of the wire is like 12 inches, just right into, it looks like a pipe going into the wall just to, to get enough juice for this. But it's, listen, we're all going through this. It's, it's it's really amazing. I assume you're just going to keep writing about this until there's nothing to write about. Yep, that's my that's my plan. Yeah, I mean, I've been using, you know, I started this newsletter prior to this with this intention that I would kind of like like once a week post something about babies and so on, but it actually is sort of the timing was somewhat fortuitous because I feel like there is a lot of demand for this information and it's been a good way to get that information out quickly. Yeah, I think it's great. It's again it's the same thing, the same reason we accelerated our timing on this podcast is just there's so much that people uh, want to know and there's so much confusion and there's so much concern and I think if people, you know, are are reading reading your posts or emailing you questions, you know, they're turning into podcasts that are coming up. Hopefully we can get this out. But I would 
strongly suggest all of our listeners check out Emily Oster's website. Again, that's emilyoster.net. Sign up for her newsletter, buy her books. I'm a huge fan. Obviously, I've, I've read the books. I love the books. We've talked about them. And hopefully we'll, you know, we'll all get through this together with as best data as humanly possible. I hope so. Excellent. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor. Thank you for taking time out of your day as an economist, as a writer, as a, a school, homeschool teacher, as a parent yeah. uh, to, to, to you know speak to our listeners. I really appreciate it. I am 100% certain that if you agree, we're going to have you on a lot because I'm going to keep asking you and I won't let you say no. And good luck with everything and with your writing and obviously with your health and your family. Yes, likewise. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.